hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Good evening. First time for everything. For those that don't know me, I'm Stephen McConaughey, uh, husband to the famous one and only Rachel McConaughey. My claim to fame. Okay, let's talk about love. (laughs) On that note. What do we need to do to be part of God's story? What do we need to do to live forever in heaven? Big questions. There was once a conversation between two experts about these very questions. One expert was a lawyer, but not just any lawyer. He was an expert in religious law. So he knew all the scriptures and the rules and the regulations and the prophecies. The other expert was Jesus himself. If anyone had the answers to these questions, Jesus probably would. Now let's read their conversation in Luke chapter 10 from verse 25. I'll let you grab your Bibles if that's your jam. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you'll live. So the expert in religious law went up to Jesus to check him out, to, uh, to find out who is this rabbi Jesus. Does he know his stuff? He asks Jesus a question that he himself already knows the answer to. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't try to win the argument to prove himself before the religious authorities, before the experts. He simply replies, well, what does the Bible say? Now, as a side note, if you're new to the Bible, it was written over about 1,500 years by lots of different authors. So by the time Jesus had this conversation, uh, those first bits, the old stuff, had already been put together and recorded uh, and studied for centuries by people like this guy, this expert. So that's the religious law that this expert had been studying all his life. What does the Bible say? To answer the question, what we should do to inherit eternal life, Jesus said, go back to the Word of God. What is it saying to you? How do you read it? And of course, the religious expert knew the answer. The Bible tells us to love. It tells us whom to love. And it tells us how to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your emotions, your desires, your dreams with all your soul, with the very essence of who you are, with all your strength, your willpower, conscious effort, all your potential to make a difference. As the Passion Translation puts it, all your energy, with all your mind, your rational thought, your decision-making, your ability to conceptualize and understand and reason, The Passion Translation says, your every thought. I like the Māori translation of this passage. It helped me to grasp this. 
kia whakapaua tau ngākau, tau wairua, tau kaha, tau hinangaro, ki ta aroha, ki ta ariki, ki tau atua. The word whakapaua means to use up, to expend, to exhaust. So here's a quick te reo lesson for you. This word comes from po, meaning spent or used up. Now, if you were really, really tired and a friend came up to you and said, how's it going? How are you? You might say, kua pautaho, which literally means I've run out of puff. So this passage is saying, may your heart, to ngāko, your spirit, to wairua, your strength, to kaha, and your thoughts, to hinangaro, be completely expended in loving the Lord your God. Complete devotion. Leave nothing in the tank. But he's not finished. The expert talking to Jesus continues quoting the Old Testament. And love your neighbor as yourself. So when we ask, what should we do to inherit eternal life? To be a part of God's story. The Bible tells us to love. And it tells us how to love. With complete devotion. And it tells us whom to love. It's not just enough to love God and follow his rules. Love God and love others. And implicitly in that same instruction, love yourself. But wait, if we've already completely used up our love, every aspect of our love, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, what do we have left to love others with? Let alone ourselves, maybe the hardest to love of all. Maybe that's just me. (laughs) But that's not how love works. This passage first teaches us how to love God fully. It gives us the model of how to love. And then the implicit command is to apply that to loving others and to loving yourself. So also love others with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And also love yourself with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. What would it look like for us to be completely totally devoted in love for God? What would it look like for us to be completely, totally devoted in love for others, for our neighbor? And what would it look like for you to be completely, totally devoted in love for yourself? Which of those three is God prompting you right now as you listen? What's your next step? Jesus responded to the expert with this impossible challenge. Right, do that and you'll live. All we have to do is love God, love others, and love ourselves perfectly all of the time with complete devotion. Thank God for grace. I'll leave you with a prayer by Thomas Akempis about love, written in his book, The Imitation of Christ. Forgive the thou's, it's... uh, very old. Enlarge thou in me love, that with the inward palate of my heart I may taste how sweet it is to love, and to be dissolved, and as it were, to bathe myself in thy love. Let me be possessed by love, mounting above myself through excessive fervor and admiration. Let me sing the song of love, let me follow thee, my beloved, on high, Let my soul spend itself in thy praise, rejoicing through love. Let me love thee more than myself, 
and love myself only for thee. Amen. Hey everyone, so great to see you all here tonight. Um, so we're going to be looking at a well-known passage in Luke, and I want you to imagine. Imagine you're walking down the street, you're walking through town, but you're in a rush. You were meant to meet your friend 10 minutes ago, pretty classic for me. Um, you're in the middle of town, and you see someone in a blues jersey. Oh, they must be an Aucklander. They're slumped on the side of the road. You can't see that they're moving, but you're power walking, so you're moving pretty quickly. It's a split second to make a decision. And what do you do? Would you stop to help this person, or would you keep walking? Luke 10:30 to 37. A man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. The first two people who came across the man are the people you would expect to help, a priest and a temple worker or a Levite. But it was the Samaritan, a person from a group the Jews despised, who, st who stopped and took action. The Good Samaritan is one of the most well-known parables. The term Good Samaritan is used in popular culture for someone who does a kind action, a random act of kindness. This concept of kindness and what leads people to do um, Good Samaritan acts. So intrigued two psychologists at Princeton University that they decided to do a study on this topic. The basic, the basic concept was that they got these graduate students who were studying theology and got them to prepare a talk. And then they would cross the road and, prepare, and present it to a group of undergraduate students. At one point on their route, they would walk past someone who look, was dressed as if they were homeless. They were slumped, groaning. The psychologist wanted to know what would make someone more likely to stop. So there were a few variables that they investigated. The first one, the reason for studying theology. All of the subjects completed a survey to see why they were studying theology. Was it because they wanted to help people? Was it because they wanted to learn more about the gospel. They are, the, the psychologist expected there to be a relationship between those who went into ministry to help people and those who stopped to help the man on the side of the road. The second variable was the topic of the study. So they got all of the graduate students to prepare a talk 
and for some of them, this was on the topic of the Good Samaritan. And the psychologist expected that for those who had just been thinking about the message of the Good Samaritan to stop and help the person. And the third variable was they told half the subjects they were running late. They were already expected across the road and should, and should get there quickly. The other half they told, they, they told them that they had a few minutes but could start heading over now. The results were pretty interesting. Of the three variables they looked at, the only thing which had any impact on whether they stopped to help the person was whether they were in a rush. When they thought they had plenty of time, 63% stopped to help the person, whereas when they were in a rush, only 10% stopped. Some even stepped over the person groaning on the ground in their rush to get to the, to the talk. I was pretty surprised that those who had just been preparing a talk on the Good Samaritan still, it had no impact on whether they stopped to help the person. Do the results surprise you? Have you ever been in a rush and felt like you had blinders on, like in a horse race where you can only see what's in front of you? I know for me, if I'm in a rush, I definitely only see what's in front of me. The study shows the importance of context. Are we so busy that we don't see others? We need to have space or margin in our lives for Jesus to work through us. We need to slow down if we're going to notice others. I don't want it to feel like a burden that you must do X, Y, and Z for God to love you. That's not how it works. But it's an outworking of your faith. And as you become more close to him, you value the things that he values. If it's something worth doing well, it's worth doing poorly. If it's important, it's better to do it sometimes and imperfectly rather than never trying at all. Going back to the story I mentioned at the start, I don't think many of us would walk past the Aucklander slumped in the street at town, in town at night, but if you were in a rush, would you stop and talk to your colleague who looked a bit anxious? Be patient with the customer who asked too many questions? Do you have margin in your life to take those opportunities to reveal God's love to people in your life through action? Do you have room? Becky and Stephen. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Catherine. Um, I'm here today with my husband, Nathan, who a lot of you have met down the back. And um, actually, a lot of you wouldn't have met his parents and his brother, who are here all the way from Whangarei. So if you have a moment, please go say hi. Cool. Mary and Martha. So in a moment, we're going to read a passage of scripture um, from Luke 10, um, verse 38. And when we're reading it, I'd really like you to, ma to imagine the scene. Imagine the house and the people in the story. Okay, here we go. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are, wor are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. 
Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. In this story, there is a contrast between Mary and Martha's actions. Jesus says, better. What Mary is doing is better than what Martha is doing. It's not to say that what Martha is doing is wrong, it's just saying that it would be better for her to be spending quality time with Jesus than stressing about serving over, serving him. It's almost like Martha is treating Jesus like an employer she's working for than a friend she is serving. Just imagine for a moment if you had some friends over for dinner. You welcome them in, and they sat down, and then you just went into another room and started preparing dinner without spending quality time with them. Wouldn't that be so strange? Are you serving God more like he's your employer or he's your friend? Are you spending time with God? I mean you one-on-one alone. Are you spending one-on-one time with God? Is that a part of your life, your day, your week? Maybe you're sitting here and you don't know what I mean by one-on-one time with God. Well, there's many ways in which we can spend one-on-one time with God, and it doesn't matter where we are, whether we're in the car driving, we're in nature, um, we're in our bedroom. Some ways we can spend time with God is in worship, in prayer, and in God's Word. And tonight, what I want to focus on is spending one-on-one time with God in His Word, also referred to as the Bible. God asks for meditation of His Word in Joshua, but you can't be meditating on his word if you're not spending time in it. How do we know what our faith is based on and who God is if you're just listening to people and not actually looking at what God has written? In Proverbs 30 verse five, it says, every word of God proves true. How do we know the ultimate truth of the gospel if we don't spend time in God's word at all? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, reason being, that. The man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. God breathed. That is inspired by God himself, not people. God's word is useful. Among many things, it can be used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. Isn't that powerful? It cuts into us. God uses his word to challenge us, to grow us, to show us love, to speak of his mercy and forgiveness, to give you personal guidance into your life. It helps us better better to know who Christ is, who God is, who we are called to be, and how we are better able to live and become more like him. 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. But is that true for you? Are you spending time in God's word that it is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? God can speak incredibly clearly through his word. He can speak into your life. He can give you the word you need to hear. And you can be changed to be closer into the person you're created to be. Do you have a personal relationship with God? Have you received the everlasting gift of salvation from the internal and ultimate punishment of your sin? God loves you. He died on a cross to come in relationship with you. If you have accepted that gift of salvation, you have been saved by him. Don't you want to know him? Don't you want to know your saviour, your creator, the author and perfecter of your faith? If you desire to know God, why not read his word, the word that God has breathed? Think about a relationship you have with someone you're closest with. You become close to that person because you spend time with them, getting to know them. But are you with God being more like a Mary or a Martha? Are you spending time serving God without actually spending time with God? When I was younger, I didn't spend much time one-on-one with God and his word. Maybe once a week, maybe. Then I went on this missions trip and I just saw um, people that were reading God's word every day and how just hearing how much God was changing their lives through him and through the word. I saw and became to see the value of God's word in my own life. I could see how I was serving God more like an employer than I was a friend. On the trip, I was given a reading plan and I found it super helpful. I no longer needed to think about what I needed or where I needed to go in the Bible and how much of the section I needed to read. So a reading plan or an audio plan, for those who don't know, is um, it's a divide of God's word into bite-sized pieces. It helps you focus on a section of God's word and it tells you in the reading plan exactly where to go. So if you're not a follower of Jesus yet and you want to know what it means to have a relationship with God, you can literally search on Google for that and a reading plan. Wait, hundreds of reading plans will come up, if not thousands. If you're struggling with anxiety and you want to know what God says about that, then you can search that in Google and a reading plan will come up. If you have a Bible app on your phone, there are reading plans on it and even really handy notifications to remind you to spend time with God if that's something you struggle with. From the mission strap, I made changes. Spending time in God's word has now become something that's normal in, my part of, in the part of my day. My mindset has changed into a mindset of learning from God's word, not just seeing it as a tool of salvation. My relationship with God has grown. My faith is stronger. It is deeper. I know my faith is strong because my foundation is more in his word than what people say. God has spoken to me, and I've heard from God so many times 
more than in his word than through people. His God, God has spoken to me so directly into my life and so accurately. Um, it's quite scary, actually, but that's what God does. His word has challenged me. It has encouraged me. God's word has changed my life, and it will continue to change my life. Is God changing your life through his word? As I conclude, I want to leave you with this. You miss 100% of the goals you don't shoot. You miss 100% of the opportunities to learn that you do not take. Make a time to spend, um, sorry, make a plan to spend time with God in his word and use the opportunities you have. God can change your life through it. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.